Let's begin with prayer. Maybe a little bit less than that too. God, as we listen to summer outside, help us to be humbled by the majesty of your creation. Help us to be humbled as we witness young leaders in faith growing up before our very eyes. Help us to be humbled when we see that we are not the sole residents of your wisdom, but that others hold parts of that story and that only together, piecing them together, we can see the full majesty of your kingdom made manifest in the body of Christ. God, when we are tempted to think that we are the only ones, when we are tempted to think that our wisdom supersedes others, when we are tempted to think that we hold the keys of all of your purpose here on earth, humble us again. Open our eyes to bow to the Christ and others. And God, I ask for your special blessing on this unique experiment in ecumenism. Two churches finding their relationship with one another. Help this to be an experience of humility for both communities that they might find you stronger than either of their individual identities. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, Jason has asked me to continue on in the conversation in 1 Corinthians. The people in Corinth were in conflict. They were having some troubles. They were squabbling over who was the authority on certain subjects They were claiming that someone was with Cephas and someone was with Apollos and someone was with Paul and they were trying to say that that one was better than the other and they were trying to assert their dominance and wisdom and authority. This might seem to be an individual problem for the church in Corinth, but I'm thinking, I'm seeing that Paul noticed that this was a problem that was insidious at the outset of the church and that if it could plant in that church, if it could plant in the churches that were growing around that region, that it would become the end of Christianity as it was just beginning. I'm sure you all know that infighting, a sense that one person owns the authority, can be the end of any church. Maybe some of you have seen churches end for this very reason. Someone gets a little bit too big of a head Someone a little bit too much of a know-it-all. What's interesting is is Paul uses sarcasm. It's like we've we've captured a snarky email from Paul and it's stuck in amber here in the Bible forever. So if you can hear his snark, I'll read it to you. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become 
kings. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all as though sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we grow weary from the work of our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things to this very day. An interesting style that he is affecting. Calling himself, the apostles, calling the work of the humble church the rubbish, the trash of the world. I wonder how the original church in Corinth would have read something like that with the vitriol and the admonition that I think he intended. I was raised in um, the Plymouth Brethren Church. I was raised evangelical and my father was a church planter And I remember thinking when I was growing up that the early church was utopic. I thought that, you know, if we could just go back to what it was like back then, we would all work together and everything would be fantastic. The problem, the real problem was the church now. And if we could just understand how we had uh, begun, if we could go back, we'd fix it all. I was stopped at like Acts 4. You know, I, I didn't get past that. Rea- and Acts 5, things go haywire pretty quickly. And so I didn't realize that the church from the outset, in fact, from even before the church began, was rife with controversy. It was full of people trying to claim authority. Even when Jesus was with his disciples, he was constantly trying to help them understand what servant leadership looked like. No one wins by being the loudest person in the room. You win by serving and leading through action and humility. It's a countercultural idea of how power works. We think that the person in charge is the most powerful one. In fact, the people of ancient Israel had this desire to be like their neighbors and have a king. They're like, we need to have a king. And God was like, you know what, it's going to go badly for you. But okay, let's try that. And it was good for a hot second, then went kind of south. Because what they'd had before that, this sense that God was their heart and that each individual person had responsibility for their own actions was truly how God imagines us to be in relation. And so Paul here is trying to do something very similar. He's saying, let's go back to a sense, maybe he was in the same way, retroactively looking back at the the people of Israel as they were still forming and say, let's let's take responsibility for who we are. Acts 1.14, it says, Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And believe me, there have been times that looked like that. I was the church that I was raised in, I called everyone uncle and aunt. And we'd sit down, and I could be in anyone's home, and I felt like there was just this wonderful sense. I didn't know later that we'd fall, fallen apart. 
When we left the church and the church disintegrated, I had no idea what had gone on upstairs when the parents were all squabbling with one another. I thought it was Acts 1.14. But you see, even, even there in Acts 9, when they were trying to, to, to say that they were all of orthodox mind, they were all together in their ideas of where God was and how it worked, they were really dis- discerning what that meant. You see, this is pre-heresies. This is pre-orthodoxy. Uh, the church is still dis- deciding who Jesus is and how to understand it. They're wrapping their minds around this very difficult idea of incarnation. And so obviously it's going to take some time for them to understand what's going on. And in Acts 19, just a few chapters later, some people were baptized wrong and they had to get rebaptized. You think that made the person that baptized the first time feel good about that? It's tension. We also thought that I thought that they had orthopraxis, like they all did things together. They all ate meals together. They did all their worship together. It says they devoted themselves to apostolic teaching and fellowship koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Apostolic teaching. Acts 2.42. What apostles are these? We're not sure which ones are the ones yet. I mean, this is all very fresh and new, and that's exciting. They could listen to the actual apostles. They didn't have to have, it was just these guys that we know are talking to us and we're learning from them. But you see, there's still this baked-in sense that we're figuring it out together. You see, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira got it wrong. If you remember that story. They came and brought only a portion of their land as they'd sold it and they put it in front of Peter and they said something different to Peter about what they'd brought. And then God smote them. Tension. There's real tension and there's real violence at the beginning of the church. And if we misunderstand how that started, we are doomed to be cloudy in our judgment of things that are happening around us. Now, don't get me wrong. The idea of division, the concept of division is useful when you're being prophetic against things that are evil in the world around you. Right? When prophets stand up and are divisive, they say that that's a wrong thing. That's different than what we're talking about here. Elijah, a prophet, he, was, he would rail against polytheism and the way that the nations around them had turned away from God. And so he was a, he was a prophet for monotheistic He believed that people should come back to Yahweh, and Yahweh was power, and he proved it. That's division to unify. Nathan, a good example, against talking about kings, he saw that the king was unjust. He had murdered someone for his own gain. And he told him a story that did promote division. It it saw how divisive the heart of David was at that time. It was revelatory for him to understand where he had fallen short of this dream of the kingdom. That's division that's helpful. It's useful. It's prophetic. And then other prophets like Amos, they they railed against economic division that existed in their country. And in fact, we should do the same. We should rail against economic division. So I'm saying this is not to be milquetoast Christian. When we see things that are evil, racism, poverty, injustices in our world, we need to work and show our love of God through that action. 
And yet, the division in the church over who gets to read or who's the smart one in Bible study. I'm sure you've been in those Bible studies. I know I have been. (laughs) Somebody takes control and you're like, oh my gosh, would so-and-so stop talking? You know, it seems like every single question that's offered, this person has an answer. And it just, it, it quiets the entire room and everyone that's, that's more meek and more bashful, they're not going to step in and say something that might be wrong because this person has, has claimed that they're the authority. Know-it-alls in Christ can be just as dangerous as wrong teaching because it pushes people out of a sense of ownership of their faith. I think division is not necessary in church. I think it's, it's, it's helpful for us to look toward connection. Romans 9, 20 through 21. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You see, I think that what's happening here is that Paul's beginning to tease out a sense of Pauline ecclesiology. You guys know what that means, a sense of Pauline ecclesiology, that, that, that Christ is the head and we are the body. And the body is full of variant parts that make up a whole and full self, that we have different roles to play and that they are all honorable in their own way and that God can be glorified in the honor that we bring to it, which is to say that Your wisdom and my wisdom are different. And if we can work together towards weaving that together, we are a stronger tapestry of faith instead of me saying that I know something that you don't know and you should just be quiet. I don't know you, but I'm I'm not sure if that's an apt (laughs) conversation to have. So you see, Paul is about to talk about Pauline ecclesiology in Corinthians 12. So very soon, it's on his mind. He's setting the stage. So I don't think it's, it's... It's strange for me to say that this is the beginning. He's saying you can't assume a kingship inside of your small domain. Because if you do that, you have pushed out an opportunity for God to have wisdom inside of your community. Paul is trying to create a church that is not going to fracture and faction immediately. He's trying to create a church that will look very different than what he grew up with. And I think it's important for us to go back to what Saul of Tarsus knew of the temple culture and the church that he was worried that this young, burgeoning followers of Christ cult was becoming. So Saul of Tarsus worked for the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the temple guard. He was helpful in, we don't know exactly to what degree, in certain atrocities that happened to beat people into orthodoxy and orthopraxis inside of that community. He saw what happened when someone was right and someone else was wrong, and the way that they fixed that was by jailing, sometimes killing those individuals. Saul would have been available or present or at least have been aware of what happened to Peter as early as Acts 5, 6. That they were preaching in the temple in the... And they were thrown into, into prison. And then the angel let them out and they preached some more and they were thrown back into prison. 
And Gamaliel, the, the elder, said, you know, we should see what they're doing. But there was others that were dissenting, and there was a sense of uprising that was happening, and they needed to stop them. And so a few chapters later, when Stephen was sharing the good news, he was taken out and stoned. And some say Saul of Tarsus was holding the, the coats as people were killing. But I wonder if he was not culpable in more ways than that. Then a couple of verses later, they say that Saul would drag Christians from their homes and imprison them, sometimes putting them on trial and finding them guilty. Saul knew and had blood on his hands because he knew what church could look like when it fell prey to the dangers of orthopraxis and orthodoxy, not in the sense of God's justice, but in the sense of individual factions trying to hold sway. It was a unique relationship that the temple had with the Roman government. They allowed the Essenes and the Sadducees and the temple authorities to to keep their religion. It was rare in those days. They saw some value in understanding the, the sociological identity of that religion for the Jewish people, and they didn't erase it and replace it with the common religion of the emperor being God. And so they were fighting over those table scraps of power and freedom. And instead of finding ways to band together, they were creating rifts and disunity. So often, especially when we see that the church is in decline, we look at those numbers, we see that we ourselves are fighting over table scraps. We think that God is not awesome sometimes. We think that the church cannot overcome. We think that somehow what it was is what it will be, and we become reductive in our thinking. Siloed. Violent in our hearts. The church in Corinth, now it says here king. Uh, the word basileus is not what they're using here. It's not the idea of king as in the emperor or king as in God. They use the Greek word basileuo, which is different. It means to have authority over or to have wisdom over. So I, this is not about someone literally trying to become king of a small group. I want to make sure that's clear. So it's not as if this individual is telegraphing that they want to be worshipped in some way. It's more insidious than that. It's a sense that someone knows more than another. Someone has more wisdom than their neighbor. And therefore, they can lord over their neighbor in condescension and sometimes in cruelty and often in silencing dissenting voices. This problem, this this goes beyond their community and can bleed into the rest of the church. This is the beginning of a problem. It can cause others to believe that only the orthodox ruler can make decisions. And so you see, Paul is trying to nip this right now before it turns into exactly what he remembered from his childhood, from his young adulthood. It becomes a church of selfishness, of pettiness. I'm afraid that I've seen those churches. You know, a friend of mine, um, <clears throat> he came down to see what I was doing at Canton. And uh, as you're growing a church from nothing, you know, no people at all, you have to sort of find that group of core leaders to begin with. And um, 
I think it's natural for a leader that first walks in to have them be the hub of the wheel, right? I'd meet with everybody individually, and they didn't necessarily have relationships with each other as, as well as they could have, but everyone came to me, and I sort of dispensed pastoral care, relationship, a sense of identity in the church. And he said, this is your limiting factor. <laughs> you can only know personally 40 people, 50 people in this intimate way, and so you will only be that big, only ever. And so if someone claims that they are the leader and they hold all of the information, all the cards, that church is never going to grow beyond the cult of that personality. Of that, no matter how good or generous that person's wisdom is. So I'm not talking about the, even the core message of the individuals. It could be good gospel. But if they are retaining some sense of ownership of that, the church will never thrive. It requires a sense of handing away authority. So the best priests and pastors, they are working, they are striving to put themselves out of a job. That is their hope. Their hope is to raise up people in their community and say, I see wisdom in you. I see leadership in you. I want to give you that leadership so that I can step back and see how God works through your... We just watched this today. We're seeing this happening with our kids here. So if we don't understand that God can work through them, if we don't actually take a moment and listen, even if they're, they're still forming what that theological identity is, like the early church was, if we don't give them time to have that come together instead of jumping over them and saying, no, this is wrong, I'll tell you what's right, then we, we deprive ourselves of the richness of a deep church. We might hear God through them in a way that we hadn't before. So I'm learning myself on how to give away that authority, and I think it's important as you're growing churches to do that. Now, this character, the person that you know that's a know-it-all, just uh, put them in your head. First of all, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's bow to them and see that they're also Christ and we love them. But they frustrate you because they're a know-it-all and they, take the, they suck up all the oxygen out of the room. Maybe I'm doing that right now. But generally speaking, they're brutish, right? They're kind of bullyish. Jesus was not a bully. The times when he was angry, he railed against injustice. Jesus was a peacemaker and blessed peacemakers. So right off the bat, that character is out. Brutishness, no thank you. A second thing that I notice in people that are know-it-alls is that they are strong. And this is what this passage is saying. You're strong. That's fine. But isn't it interesting that Jesus came as a weak baby into the world? There's a purpose for that. There's a countercultural purpose for the incarnation to be the way that it was and for Jesus not to have come as a king, but as a baby and an impoverished young man with little education and little opportunity. So that we might continue to look to those people to find Christ again. That we might stop looking toward the elite for our wisdom and our guidance because oftentimes they have been infected by a sense of their own power and ownership. And instead that we look to each other and even below us to see that Christ lives on the fringes of society. Finally, people that are know-it-alls, they think that they are honorable. They, they hold on to their honor in some very important way. And if you somehow myth them, if you cross their honor, they, they become violent or defensive. Jesus was dishonored so that all could feel worthy to stand before God. 
That's the power of Christ's example, was to be dishonored actively. In Canton, I'm uh, an administrator of this group called Canton Neighbors on Facebook. It's 13,000 people strong. It's actually more people on the group than actually live in Canton. So at this point, I don't think that they're really the Canton Neighbors, but they're just this amalgamation of people talking all the time about dog poo and parking and who knows what. But every now and again, it gets really dark. There's some threat of violence or perceived violence. And a few outliers start saying things that are either actively about trying to seek violence or they're super racist or they're sexist or they're, they're just scary. And one time I've called the police because it was like this person had a plan and something was about to happen. But oftentimes what I'll do is I'll talk to the individual before I kick them off because we don't want that kind of conversation there. And I talk to them about their behavior and how they've come to this decision to be this vitriolic online. And this one individual who'd said that he was going to conceal a weapon and go shoot someone, he said, you know, I, I'm currently in rehab. Everything has been taken away from me. And people are dishonoring me. And I've been in prison. I know prison culture. And if you dishonor me, then I am retributive. I'm going to go and attack you. No one dishonors me. He felt so diminished that his identity had become only around the sense of honor and his power as a physical human being. He went to West Baltimore and literally skulked around in backyards until someone said, what are you doing here? So he could pick a fight. He wanted to fight because he was so filled with a sense of his own lack of worth that he had to prove it by punching someone else. Why was he in prison? Because of a bar fight, an assault. We talked about this, and he he told me his whole story, and I said, so how's that working out for you? He said, not really well. And after he'd bloviated a while about how great he was at being a defender of his own honor, I said, it sounds like the skills that you learned in prison are not doing so well once you've you've been outside of prison. Because you see, I think that the sense of being a king or being an authority is actually a kind of prison that we have for ourselves. It's defensive of probably a lack of self-awareness or a sense that our ego is not big enough to stand on its own and receive beratement or potentially even be wrong. Because isn't that the real test of people in their faith journey is to understand and be in direct communication with the fact that they might be wrong. Let God open their hearts and change their minds. This is the kind of church that Paul is dreaming of. Because Paul sees that we need to build leaders immediately. And they need to be the kind of leaders that resemble Jesus Christ. We too in this community need to have leaders. Boy, howdy. If we want to grow and be successful and share God's word with the whole Catonsville area and for me, Canton, I've got to build leaders or else I'm going to be limited by the amount of people that I can talk to. There was a church in Kansas that I went and saw when I was in seminary. It was supposed to be this, this example of effective leadership. And it was a big church. Boy, this guy had grown this church really quickly. His name was Prophet, actually. Father Prophet, strangely. And I got there, and I was with a team of three other people, 
and we were sort of watching the behavior of this church. It was, um, it was several churches crammed into one, kind of like what you have here. <clears throat> and, um, and he would go from service to service. They'd overlap, and he'd sort of like appear. And like, you know, the microphone comes out of the ground, and there's Father Prophet, about ready to do his sermon. And as you might imagine, when we were there, and it was funny that we hit this particular moment, there were these little meetings with the vestry and the council out in the parking lot. They were meeting about what they were going to do about this centralized control in profit. He had been doing things that were inappropriate. I never knew what it was. It could have been with the assistant. It could have been with money. But he had become the sense of the church was him. And he'd done so well. And I can understand the sense of hubris. You know, he'd really built this church. He'd built this church. Notice how I said that. But he didn't see how God was working in the community. And he became enamored with his own identity. A couple months later, I checked on the website to see how the church was doing. The website was down. I called up the church, and I don't know why, I, I called in the middle, there's a fire alarm going in the background. It was as if I had called, and, this like, and, and, and I asked about Father Prophet, they said, we can't talk about that. I said, can I talk to the assistant? said, we can't talk about that. The entire church became small, manageable, and another priest came in to try to take over for them. Father Prophet went somewhere else. I don't know, down in Texas somewhere. But this lesson to be learned is if we take on the responsibility of being the sole provider of wisdom or truth, then we are limiting and potentially damaging the congregation. We are not accountable to you, and that's a problem. Paul imagined a church as a body that was no head, Christ was the head, and each person was accountable to the other. Like a body, it worked in harmony. It worked as an organism. And then Paul called this way of dealing with the he called it rubbish. Remember that part at the end? He said it's the rubbish of the world. We are the garbage of the world. He's asking us to look upside down. Imagine that the church are the people that don't have power elsewhere, but they have love here. The early church was what? Slave and free. Men and women had leadership roles. There was this amazing ability to be countercultural, and it was so confusing to the Greek culture. They didn't know what to do with it. They thought they were vampires because they were eating flesh and drinking blood. They didn't know what they were, and they, and they were this leveling reality where everyone had a voice. Are we currently living in a counterculture of kindness? I don't know if we are. Maybe this community is, and I, and I swear to God, I hope you are. God bless you. I can see it. I can see lots of kindness here. But the world outside of us, oof, it's acid. There's a lot of selfishness. And in fact, we have this new culture of online reality where we create this king, this queen of who we are and, and, and the identity of ourselves, the true nature of who we are, being aware and assessing our own shortcomings or God being a part of that change is, is not happening. There's more need now than ever for servant leadership in this world that is not focused on kindness but on power, on brutish power. We are weak but you are strong, says 
says Paul. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we grow weary from the work of our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. You see, Paul is giving us a taxonomy for true leadership right there. If you can hear between his snarkiness, if you can hear in his words, how do we then find who true leaders are? There's a litmus test, right? They look weak. They look disreputable. They care for the hungry, homeless, the beaten. They might be the hungry, the homeless, the beaten. They bless even when ridiculed. That's how you test. You see if they respond with generosity when attacked. They choose to speak kindly in the face of slander. They don't say, you've hurt my political reputation. You've hurt my my cultural identity. You've hurt my place of honor in this family. You've hurt my place of honor in this church. They say, I'm sorry you feel that way. Let's see how I can be kind to you back. When I was going through my ordination process, I ran into a lot of these problems of authority. Boy, I remember I was raised up out of the Diocese of New York, and there was a period of time, I think it was like a year and a half in my process, that nobody prayed with me. I sort of like waited. I didn't like offer to pray with people. I was like, is, is someone, is the bishop, is the canon of the order, is anybody going to pray with me? And I thought, what is going on here? I'm devoting my life to God, to the church, to this church, to your church, and I get lots of suspicion because it seems like maybe I'm a wild card. I came from a different tradition than you're used to. And you don't know what to do with me. And I felt, I felt beaten down and ashamed. I remember I was at seminary and one of my professors, in fact, she's a priest near here. She is a, a professor for um, spirituality. She handed me an icon that she had on her desk. It was an old Russian icon. And it's Christ in utter humiliation. It's a picture of Jesus in the grave, hands over his heart, and he looks very sad. She said, Jim, if you are being humiliated, understand that Christ understands that. That's where Jesus stood, in humiliation, so that you might not feel alone. The hope is that we can rebuild this church in the humility of Christ. We can never forget, and as I am doing fine now and no longer people are persecuting me, I need to remember that I cannot perpetuate that level of danger inside the church myself. I need to ever check myself and look at that icon that I still have in my office and remember that Christ came to be humiliated, that we might, in our humiliation, understand our belovedness. That God can love us even when we are unable and incapable of loving ourselves. And instead of lashing out, that we find and be nourished by God's love of us. So here it is. It's easy. (laughs) It's easy. (laughs) How can it be a church of humility? Seek leaders who give away power. Seek leaders who give away power. Learn how to own orthodoxy ourselves. And don't beat people up with it. Take responsibility for our own actions. Don't use it punitively. And do not be fooled by the myth of the expert. I mean, be 
Be someone who enjoys hearing other people that are wise and can share things with you, but know that you also in your heart have wisdom to share. Don't think that somehow because they have sucked out all the wisdom out of the room that you don't have it, because you do. Apply the litmus test of Christianity to others because you see, we want our church to be a spectacle, but not a spectacle of us, a spectacle of Christ, a spectacle of kindness, a spectacle of humility and justice and love and hope. Amen. Let's end in prayer. And I was wondering, maybe would you all stand if you are able? <clears throat> and this is something I do from time to time, and I hope it will lead us into some of the music too. Um, could I ask you to hum? And I'll pick a note, and then you can find uh, maybe harmonies inside that note, and hum for a little bit, then I'll, I'll, I'll pray on top of that, okay? Keep it going. God of mercy and compassion, who fills our lives with hope and joy, help this community gathered here to feel your love even in their deepest humility. God of justice and of peace, help us to be your hands and feet as we heal this world. God of peace and of calling, Send your children forth to be your body for this world. Amen.